lights, camera, action. We have Mark Myers with us today. Good a, morning. Uh, a emerging. Can we use the word emerging filmmaker now, or no? You're 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 now becoming sort of a superstar in a sense, uh, right? I don't know if you can say emerging if you're bald. Oh, that's true. You yeah. can't say emerging when you're bald. Right. Yeah. But how many features are we in now? We're in number five, six, or seven. Seven I think, features. Man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There I've you had go. five in a row in the last couple of years. On few a, years. Yeah. On a roll. On a roll right now. On a roll. So uh, uh, tell me about what you're up to right now. Right now, I'm I'm in post on a film I'm doing for Universal called All My Life. And I'm just about to relocate post to California for the sort of back half of my director's cut and get ready for all the other finishing that comes with a, a movie. And I have two features about to come out. I have uh, Human Capital with Liev Schreiber, Marissa Tomei, Peter Sarsgaard, Alex Wolf, Maya Hawk, Asif Mandi, Paul Sparks, Betty Gabriel. They're all in this movie, Human Capital, that Orrin Moverman wrote. Um, that comes out March 20th. And then April, um, Good Friday, whatever that is, April something. Good Friday, um, We Summon the Darkness comes out, and that's a genre heavy metal pick that um, stars Johnny Knoxville, Alexandra Daddario, Maddie Hassan, Logan Miller. So I did a, a wild genre film after My Friend Dahmer, and then I immediately started directing Human Capital. And thematically, these are all your scripts, or...? or, or... Those are the first two that I didn't write. Okay. So after I did My Friend Dahmer, which I wrote and directed, um, I started looking for other scripts to sort of go again faster and not start from ground zero, the blank page. And, um, and, and those two that I attached to both happened. And then at the same time, I had uh, chased this opportunity that I fell in love with this project called All My Life at Universal. And then right when I was finishing those and getting ready for Human Capital to premiere at TIFF, All My Life um, was greenlit. So right after Toronto, I flew to New Orleans and... No time. No time. And prepped and then shot um, All My Life Before Christmas. And, and how much time did you have for prep? Maybe it was about five weeks. And when I first went down there, there was not even a cast attached. It was just Jessica Roth was a, a, about to get attached. So when I walked into my new office in New Orleans, there was one headshot on the wall. So we were casting, location scouting, prepping, everything all at the same time. Racing to the finish line. Racing to the finish line, get it all done before Christmas. Let's wind back. Okay. Because you and I met in a funny way. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think it's sort of a, kind of an influence for even for your career in a certain way, right? Right. Working at, at of all things, at Variety Magazine in ad sales. Yes. And tell me about that job. I want to know about it. And, well, that, and also, let's, let's, let's tally through it because you've got a story that connects that to what happened. Tell me about that. Well, let's start with the IFP. IFP first. Yeah. Okay, go yeah. ahead. And I think I might have known you at IFP. I just didn't have a corporate card to go get drinks at that point. Yeah, but I had know? that, so we, we were, I was able right. to take care of that part. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I mean, somewhere along the line, honestly, like right after college, there's someone that said to me that there's only one job in this world, and that's sales. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was working as like a gopher at a small production company in New York, and someone there said, oh, I, I know someone that works at the IFP. Maybe you can go in there. And when I walked in there, they had an opportunity to start selling ads 
for the IFP market, which used to be called the IFFM. IFFM. At the, yeah. at the Angelica Film the Center. Angelica at that point. Right. Now, what year are we now? Uh, uh, hit me with the with the when that was. Was that in the nineties? Yeah, mid nineties. Mid You know, I think it was. You heard about trauma had already been there with like the Toxic Avenger and things like that. So there was a Lloyd Kaufman. Right. There was wonderful a, pr a previous um, iteration of the wildness of the IFP market or the IFFM at the Angelica, but this was my introduction to the independent film community completely, which was, cause I didn't know nothing and I didn't go to film school. I just was fascinated by movies or just trying to find my way. What and, did, what did you do before not to, not to linger too much on yeah. school, but what did you do in college that would have led you to all of this? Well, I was always messing around. I mean, I used to act in plays when I was a kid, but okay, so you were in theater. Yeah, I was in theater and I uh, went to acting camp when I was in high school and would act in all the plays and that was just always part of my life. But I think it occurred to me somewhere in high school after my freshman year doing a play that you can no longer get away with uh, acting and smiling at the same time on stage. Like I, I think my acting was good as a kid. You know, I wasn't scared to be on stage, but um, I just grew more into a, being a writer. So I was writing ads right out of college, waiting tables, and then found this film production company that led me to the IFP. And from there I was selling ads. And through selling ads, I started to meet people like you at Technicolor and other people that were providing services for the independent film community. And yeah. I was almost like, I didn't understand how to make a movie, but I, I started to learn all the services that provide for this void in the middle, which is the filmmaker. And so then after I sort of learned that for about a year or two and was selling ads and booths and sponsorships um, to the Gotham Awards. Um, I sort of understood the entire New York organism, the film commissions, the Kodak, um, what an avid was. I just started learning what all these things were. And then after about doing that for two years at the IFP while I was also writing a lot of theater and small groups like the Ensemble Studio Theater and Cherry Lane, I took one of my you one. Were, I, you were you were writing plays. I was writing plays at Very the same important. time. Very important. Okay, so you already the seed for writing was happening simultaneously yeah. to selling. Yes. Okay. And so because of that, I then after about two years of doing, it, I took a one week class at the Rockport Film and Television Workshops. Of course, right? Rockport, man. Right. Come I, on, I, absolutely. I, Those were important workshops. Yeah. That was part of the foundation of uh, of opportunities to expose yourself at the time. Right, yeah. and, and you learn just the basic fundamentals in one week, which is like, you know, crossing the line and continuity and just directing angles. And I just, I did that for a week. I came back um, and then I prepped to make uh, my first short film, which was out of taking one of my one-act plays that had been on stage and then turned that into um, my first short film. And I started to, well, you make a short film up there. So I got to sort of see the whole journey within a week of how to make a short and then I started making a couple shorts. That wasn't Union Square, though, was it? That was that was a before the. Yeah, there were these shorts I made. This one that was like, um, seven, you know, like seven pages of a feature-length screenplay that I wrote. Oh wow! And then I did a movie in thirty-five millimeter black and white film called Eighty Six Customer that was based on a one I play that I had. Um, wow, you really. I've, that was but, a while ago. No, yeah, but the yeah. but the black and white thing was right. that the backstory you told me about? I did. Yeah, yeah. So tell, the, I, tell me about how that happened. Well, someone randomly from the West Coast called up the IFP and said, "We have 
16,000 feet of 35 millimeter black and white film. We'd like to donate it for a tax deduction. And Michelle Bird at the time said, we have no reason to have 35 millimeter film in the office. And so the receptionist has, happened to be a, a young burgeoning cinematographer. He told me about it. I said, I'll take care of it. I called the theater company that I was working with. I said, can you give me a tax ID number? Because I'd like to receive some 35 millimeter film. And then they sent... I paid for the FedEx and that was it. And next thing I know, I had 16,000 feet of 35 millimeter film. Fantastic. And uh, I put it in my dad's um, apartment in his freezer. And then about a year later, I'd figured out how to get all the other pieces together. So we took over a uh, restaurant on Cornelia Street for four days. And I turned that one act film into my first short film. And wow. It, yeah. So I found this DP... I think his name was Tom Agnello, and he was like a guy that rolled into town with like a a good humor truck filled with with um, film equipment, and he was just so like, he had he, so he, he had like, a thirty five uh, uh, actual camera he, like an Airy or a, yeah something or, like that or whatever, and yeah. he had a little some dolly track and he had a jib arm and I just had to get a crew and he just pulled the entire everything you would need to make a movie was like in the back of his little good humor truck and we just parked it there and we took over this restaurant for four days that's awesome and so from there i was It'd able be to be pretty see. conservative though because that amount of film lasts three hours and change right <laughs> right you yeah. know i mean it was not i mean it's it's a good amount of 35 but you know 5400 feet a, an hour so, yeah but you go up yeah. to your actor yeah. and be like you got three takes you got three, three takes you got yeah. three takes yeah yeah very that's impressive good. so but i was very meticulous about how i planned out the shot the shot list for that and the themes that I developed and how I was going to shoot it and I started to sort of organize my my thoughts on that but then that allowed me to go back to all these relationships I'd made at the IFP and go like okay now I shot this movie I went to do art and got it developed I went to Magno for the sound design I found a sound designer to you know bring it into Magno um, a friend of mine who was an assistant editor she got an avid and we we found a, a room for the summer and we we cut it over the course of a summer. And I just sort of taught myself the workflow through doing it. Amazing. I guess. I mean, I guess that's how we all do it one way or the other. You yeah. Know? You just got to do it. You got to do it. You got to just do it. Outrageous. Yeah. And I this mean, is, the, the and short this film all was 10 minutes time. too long. Like, if I looked at it now, I'd be like, oh, God, this should be 10 minutes shorter than it is. Oh, it was, yeah. it was too long? I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't so make a short film that's twenty three minutes. No, 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 no. no I didn't no, know. No. no, no, you have to uh, you have to play for the 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 format for the festivals, which they try to do. You know, somewhere between ten and fifteen. Right. You learn yeah. that in the process. Yeah. That I was like, oh, my film's only being curated in these, um, you know, bag of short films, but they were never in front of a feature because it was just too long to be in front of a feature. Yeah. So you're now you're once again going back to this whole ad sales thing. You're working at the IFP, and then and then you're you're there for a while, and then you end up with our friend, I think Craig Hitchcock, who at, at, at Variety, at Variety yeah. and you stayed at Variety for a while. Yeah, I was there for about two to three and a half years. I don't I don't really recall, but it was it was great access. I mean, it was, and they sent you on the road too, right? Yeah, I got to travel. To, you know, it would go to Toronto ahead of the festival, then back for the festival. Um, I could go to all the film commissions east of the Mississippi. There was obviously lots of trips trips to Los Angeles, and then being in a place like Variety, though it wasn't filmmaking, it was. Um, a it was a hub yeah. of information, a hub of resources. And between that, at some point, I had done a 
um, you know, one of those like freelance temp jobs at Miramax for a little while in the publicity department and sort of sniffed out what that, that was like. Cause you know, at the time that was the heyday of like a New York film and you could really see, Oh, this is what a real movie machine works like, you know, with the publicity machine and resources and, and, uh, and so I, you know, I got my window into what was, I got to look into what was going on. What was going on. Yeah. Right. Cause you could see how films got launched too. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you're, you're at, you're at variety. You continue to work at what moment did you feel comfortable jumping out of the, the desk job or how did that, how did that transition take place? Cause you did IFP and variety as a, as a sort of a, uh, an actual payroll job for quite a while, right? Cum cumulatively speaking. Right. And then the money you make, I would make some short films on the side. Right. Um, so I was always making short films or writing plays, um, having one acts put up through some groups at the, at the Ensemble Studio Theater in Cherry Lane and having this mentor, Mylon Stitt, and working with Tom Noonan. Um, I just learned a lot about, you know, just improving my writing. And so then at some point, uh, this sort of regime change was happening at Variety and, and some of the people that, that had brought me in had all been moving on themselves. And it felt like the right time. And ar around that time, I'd also just met who's uh, Jody, who's now my wife, but at the time we were dating and she was working in television at the time. And, she had seen a play or read the script of a play that I had written that had been on stage um, on weekends for about six months called Union Square. And we decided to take these 11 different one act plays that were like all monologues and take that and turn that into our first film so we could sort of um, learn how to make a feature together. And how did you scrape all that together? And, and how did you guys meet? How, how did how did how did you? Was it completely accidental, or is that? Well, she worked in entertainment, and she yeah. was a supervising producer of a Shootout uh, with Peter Guber and Peter Bart at the time. But and and we had just met at a bar, got we got connected, and realized we had some mutual friends. But then we just sort of hit it off, and we've been obviously together ever since. Now we have and, a beautiful daughter, and you're <laughs> and you guys work together. We do. We've been. What's um, that like? Um everything you can imagine it's it's all the highs and all the lows but someone that is you know we've developed our careers and our shared aesthetic together and learned how to produce together and she's been an extraordinary um partner creatively to me she's a really really smart creative producer yeah and then my sales kind of skills kind of lets me kind of just used to allow me to just go out to the world and be like, I'm going to go find some money from some random people I don't know in a random city because I heard about some people that might want to invest in film. And I would just go out to like Houston or something and, and meet with some people and raise, yeah, and raise some money. And that's how like down the road, things like uh, My Friend Dahmer were funded through soft money that way. So this is a good transition for My Friend Dahmer. Yeah. Uh, I think you told me the story that uh you went to was it comic-con yeah okay now so take me back to comic-con when you discovered i guess was that where you discovered the idea that you wanted to do this tell me about how how this uh because this was a this is a pivotal moment for you to to make this film right well not to back it up too much but yeah. like um as we were catching up the other day and yeah um after i made this feature with robert loja called harvest Right, I was in yeah. I was in post, and I and, and I said to Jody, uh, we said to each other, I, I think what would be an interesting movie, 
is something that's a portrait of a serial killer as a young boy. That's provocative. I could take portrait of an artist as a young man, that English major book I'd read, read by James Joyce, James Joyce, and use that as a template to sort of do how does a, how does a young man realize that he's a monster? And so I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. And then simultaneously, we were looking for naturalistic graphic novels. We're not sort of superhero aficionados. And so if I was going to find a graphic novel, it would be about something much more naturalistic. And so I happened to find myself at an expo that was below New York Comic Con um, promoting cameras because I was about to do a commercial. And when I was leaving, I was like, what? why is everyone in costumes? And I decided to go in. I didn't realize it was like the preview day of... Uh, Comic-Con in whatever year that was, 2012 or something. And so I wandered around and was speaking to some of the publishers and one publisher, Abrams Comic Arts, said, we have this book that no one's seen yet that we're really excited by, about for next year. And then she pulled it from underneath the desk and it was um, an advanced reader copy of My Friend Dahmer. And it was the a collision of these two ideas that I had, which was portrait of an artist or portrait of a serial killer's young boy, um, and a graphic novel, but it was based on a real person, my friend, you know, Dahmer. Now Sorry, I wasn't Dahmer. a huge serial killer, you know, um, you weren't a fan. Yeah. I wasn't a fan of serial killers. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I, I knew that this was the collision of a couple ideas that I already wanted to attack, but even better, it was based on a real person. And I, um, Fortunately, when I reached out, I read it that night. I reached out to the uh, author that night, and he's from Cleveland. And fortunately, Harvest had already been to the Cleveland Film Festival where it won Best Feature. And so it wasn't like I was too random of a guy emailing because there had been a lot of people from Hollywood and elsewhere that were interested in his redo of this story of his friendship with Jeffrey Dahmer in high school because he had done a prior, smaller version of the same story. So... Um, this writer, the same writer, yeah. And who was that? I'm sorry, Durf Backdurf. Okay. And so he had done a like a a cult self published um, version of it, and then he was dissatisfied with it because it wasn't as extensive as he knew it should have been. So then later, a couple of years later, he went back and he did it correctly in that larger, more detailed version of their high school days together as friends um, became this you know award winning graphic novel. Um, you know, and I and, and I guess what he realizes I wasn't going to, because of Harvest and my conversations with him, he trusted that I wasn't going to exploit it and just turn it into like a horror film about um, a guy named Dahmer who's you know a monster in high school because that's not what it was. They didn't know at the time that their friend would become who he became. So that's the truth about his story is that he was just another one of the kids, like the oddball among their friends. And so he trusted me with his book. And then um, that- How long did it take to write the script? It took me a couple months to actually get motivated to write it. And then- um, And you did it on your own. Yeah, I did it. But I, you know, Jody was there through the whole outlining development process with um, Adam Goldworm as well, which is an old friend of ours and he's a manager. And so um, when we showed it to him, he, he looked at us as sort of uh, character-driven indie New York filmmakers and he- lives in LA and bounces around much more in the genre community. And so I knew that this was a collision of those two dynamics. And so the three of us huddled and I, I wrote a vomit draft and then we re-outlined it and then we hashed it out together and I kept working on it. And, uh, and then eventually I had done a movie called How He Fell in Love. And when I was in post on that, someone was sniffing around about the book and found out that I had the rights to it. And, um, 
And then from there, I said, actually, no, I, I already wrote the script. And so now the script started to sort of float around um, development offices, I guess, in Los Angeles, and ultimately ended up on the blacklist. And Okay, now, you explain that to me. I'm sorry, I should know what this is. <laughs> Tell me what this is. Um, the, the, blacklist, blacklist? the Blacklist is this annual end-of-year survey of favorite screenplays that executives in Hollywood or in the film business um, have read that have not yet become a movie. So things that are ready to become sh shot, but you know they may have actors and producers and directors attached. Or maybe, in, in my case, it was just the, you know, the writer and the producers were attached. It's just a raw screenplay that people go, oh, this, is, this is something we like. That's, just, fast, that's fascinating. See, this is something, I mean, not that I should know about this, but I should probably know about this. I well, have no idea that this existed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I, I guess for, you know, writers, directors, and development execs that, from from that point of view. When it's, I think of the blacklist, I, I think of the McCarthy era. Yeah, so. You know, when you're, when you're, you, I think that you're getting knocked out of the ability to be able to do your, your craft in general. No, I'm and proud this, to be on the and, blacklist. And you're, and you're, yeah, this is like, this is like one of the great, lists to, to be on yeah well it was very helpful yeah. for me it was very helpful for me um yeah. and and that opened up a lot of doors and it it one thing it really did is all of a sudden i met all these wonderful young actors that were interested in in the role of jeffrey dahmer or the friends and i was able to sort of really get a full landscape of all the potential options out there of wonderful actors to work explain with explain the mechanics behind that so you're on the blacklist and you meet all these actors that or is there, uh, uh, is, is, is this, I guess maybe the question I have is talent getting attached, but not knowing you find out about scripts, right? In a lot of different ways, right? The reps generally, the reps, they're a young actor, they're, so, they're going to so get it from their agent or manager. Right, right. So the agents and the managers are pointing to this, right? right. Looking at this. And so being on the Explain blacklist that, helped yeah. kind of like brand it or give it a sort of a, a, a stamp of validation that this is something that, you know, I would like you to read, maybe meet with this director. He's made a couple movies that most people haven't heard of, but this is a cool project. And so I would meet with these actors and um, try to find who could be the best Dahmer. And in, in the end, I landed and was very committed to this uh, wonderful young man, Ross Lynch, who was just leaving his Disney show, Austin and Alley, and uh, locked into him as the future Jeffrey Dahmer. And that... Uh... And, 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 and then you start, just like any other movie, you start to put a package together. You're like, this is our cast. And so uh, eventually it was like uh, Anne Heche, Alex Wolf, Ross Lynch. Um, I had always thought that Dallas Roberts would make a, a great Lionel Dahmer, the father. And so um, with this idea we started to go around and try to raise, you know, financing through conventional channels and also through private equity, which led me down. Tell me, tell me how that worked. I mean, there's so many ways to do that, right? There's yeah. foreign pre-sales, there's equity only, there's equity and debt against, uh, mm -hmm. uh, against state programs and, and, uh, tax programs. And so what, how did you guys put together this and how, cause this is, uh, this was built from, from the ground up, this from was the ground up, total yeah. grassroots capability, right? Yeah, and and, it, and you were represented at the time by an agent by now or no? I well, I or you did not have an agent. No, at this by, point in time. By, by I had uh, I had sniffed around to try to find some rep representation, but I in retrospect I look back and realize that it really 
I had to improve my work to attract that interest. And by making How He Fell in Love, which is a little bit more of a provocative but small indie with strong performances. And when I was finishing that, My Friend Dahmer also became a script on the blacklist. And so when those two things happening simultaneous, I started having a bunch of meetings with, you know, um, representation and um, have since been at uh, UTA. Um, Where you are now. Where I am now, yeah. Yeah. So nuts and bolts on the financing on that, there was a... were you guys, I'm sorry, because I so, don't know, were well, you guys the producers or was there, yes. did a producer, so you were the producers yeah. as well. I've, I've, okay. I've produced everything, you know, I think it's kind of like a way to, well. Because um, that's, because that's, because this is, to, I'm not saying it's always a collaborative affair, but, but it, but for a, a director, or especially a writer director, right? Yeah, you yeah, have to you, make it you happen. Have, right, you have to make it happen, but typically you have a, a, you you at some point you try to find a teammate. Well, who, my teammate is Jody. Jody, and yeah. so Jody and so does. We, yeah. we we together will you know start the process. We'll go to our casting director and say this is something that we're you know really passionate about. And when Jody starts to really feel like we must make the movie, I feel like then all hands are on deck because now we're both fully committed to this script. And uh, there, you need deadlines, I think, to give urgency to everything. So we create some deadlines for ourselves. And um, with a little bit of a package of talent, um, you know, you, you put a little money forward to sort of keep the um, casting director engaged to help you, you know, navigate through um, talent to find, sort of help hone in on who are your like few top actors that you need for your package that you can go out um, to investors. And so these are the actors that want to be part of the movie. You have to lock down dates and windows as well. Right. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle and you, you're juggling a lot of things that are not yet um, locked in stone, but you're having everyone believe that the other side is, you know, moving closer and, and everyone's kind of moving simultaneously with a faith that you're going to make it. And so you have, you have to keep your word because all you have is your reputation. So you, you got to just find a way to make it. And, and then the other thing you got to, or we did is, you know, you have a line producer help you do a budget. So you right, have a, of course. right. You have to be able to go, this is the real numbers of how to make, break down the script and how to pull it off. And I was very committed to shooting it in Ohio. So there was the Ohio tax credit that yeah. offsets some of the um, gross costs of, of the budget. And so you, you could, um, in this case, we found an investor who also could better the tax credit financing deals out there by also doing the tax credit financing on top of the private equity mixed with smaller investments from other um, private equity investors. And so no, I, no pre-sales, none of that. No, not no, on no, my no. friend Dahmer. I've so, had that happen to the films so that happened afterwards. Credit, yeah. yeah, that's it. You know, just as, as raw as you could be. It's very old school. Right. But yeah. now I'm thinking, okay... Because to me, the the part of the story and part of I think what will what makes it interesting, right, for for the the people who will be listening to this podcast, is that you went from what was basically a, a was a, a a desk job at at Variety um, to to going out into the wilderness of, of filmmaking. Yeah, and with and odd, jo- you, odd and, jobs along the way, and when you jumped off that cliff, because right. it was a cliff to jump off of, because yeah. you had to stop at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, how how did the uh, how did your life come together financially? 
to sustain this this path because you 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 made harvest how I fell in love my friend Dahmer uh, 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 we summon the darkness human capital all my all these films right yeah I've had a few fortunately lately I mean there's been a you know into a new shift into a new gear since my friend Dahmer um, fortunately and uh, explain, I would say dis- ex- deservingly explain, so explain that gear that shifted for you was it that all of a sudden you could have money that would seed and help you develop something and you had time bef- between projects to make the next one how did that did you receive funds to well, to, to make because you had to, to develop bridge between, right and, and prep and all of that stuff well to right? bridge between harvest and how he fell in love were was a stretch of years which was a little bit of a i think a creative reset but also i was doing you know um small commercials and i had a couple video clients and i would do these ethnographies around the country where major brands would send me out and i would interview like housewives in their home about their purchasing habits and stuff and i would do these like mini documentaries, and that was that's a, awesome. So, it, so, it so, cool. so, so that's something you're doing to make make some dough. That's and, uh, was, and to fill in the blanks. Yeah, yeah, I did some commercials like for Skype and uh, a bunch of other small things. And then uh, the important thing that was also is during this little stretch where I was I was writing and trying to hone my craft and had these sort of freelance video commercial jobs. Jody was also heading um, content for a digital agency in New York, a place called Syrup that then became um, LBI, which then became MRY. And so she was she was writing a sort of a advertising, digital advertising um, a stretch in her career where she was overseeing production there. And, uh, you know, th- that gave us... So she was actually doing a job job. She went and did a desk job yeah. for a while that, you know was a stretch, but, you know, advertising is, is its own community, its own beast. And and you um, were doing some of it yourself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know. From time to time. Yeah, you got to really fully commit to one or the other, I think, unless you're some sort of, like, rock star filmmaker, and they're just like, we're excited to have James Mangold on our commercial, commercial just to, like, have our celebrity director here. You know, but otherwise, you got to really be a director that's committed to one or the other, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, for you, you're 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 developing these these scripts and and doing all that stuff, and and uh, and you're able to keep it going. Yes. And uh, highs now, and lows. But. Yeah, highs and lows. And for you, um, uh, uh, you have certainly uh, uh, a long passion for being a, a a film fan. You were telling me what was it the story you were telling me about Tarantino. Uh, the Pulp Fiction story about the... Just the other day? Yeah, about the watch. Oh, that's funny. Uh, I was just remarking to you over lunch that we were out in New Orleans uh, and some of the cast members and I one night were just in my apartment uh, watching Pulp Fiction again. And I just, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it just occurred to me how funny Pulp Fiction is that even this pocket watch that Christopher Walken tells the young Bruce Willis character, you know, I, I was a prisoner of war and your dad kept it up his butt for seven years. And then after that, Christopher Walken kept it up his butt for two more years. And now it's finally your, here is the watch and here it is son. And so then you go to the story and there's Bruce Willis, his, I think his girlfriend has given away the pocket watch to a pawn shop. And so he's got to go back and get it. And then when he goes to get it, he finds himself 
about to get sodomized in the in the basement. And it just occurred to me after not watching Pulp Fiction for many years, like, oh, Tarantino made the darkest joke, which is just stay away from that watch because every time someone gets close to that watch, something goes up your butt. <laughs> That's that was that was and it that just, was your like at home laugh on that. Yeah, just, yeah, random, but it was you know just the. I was just praising how Tarantino I think is extraordinary and and um, as we all know and just has well, a great sense about, of humor. Talk about that. Talk about influences, not about necessarily watches going up your butt, but but about filmmaker influences. Uh, Tarantino is one of your one of your heroes, Lately, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, the Talk influences, the, I think, change whatever project's in front of me. I'm like, what are the filmmakers to aspire to or look as role models that I think are cousins of whatever I'm working on at the time? So I was a big fan of, obviously, as we all, any independent filmmaker is, of Cassavetes and the ambition and the, and the way in which he finds ways to cultivate great performances, but also make you uncomfortable and force you to look at something and in new ways and the entrepreneurial nature of what he's done or what he did. Um, Olivia Assayas, if I'm saying his last name correctly, I don't think I have. And his cinematographer, Denis Lenoir, you know, I, I really locked into late August, early September, early, early on as this wonderful, beautiful French film. And, and that helped me inform um, writing the script, how he fell in love and a sort of a shooting style that was quite like, there is very lyrical and airy um, with we some of the darkness when I had the storyboard artist we were referencing Kubrick and how he framed those characters in Clockwork Orange um, and that and that's expressed sort of in the storyboards and in the in the shooting of how I framed you know Alexander Dario Maddie Hassan and Amy Forsyth as these badass heavy metal chicks um, I remember with human capital I started when I was working with Liev um, I was like, oh, we have not as many days to shoot as I had hoped to express everything I wanted to do with the camera. But I started watching Michael uh, Clayton, and I, it was just a reminder of how much you could create by just keeping an, a, an amazing actor in a medium shot and just staying on him. And because and, I realized that was completely possible with Liev after, as we all know, he's an incredible actor. and after one or two days of working with him, like half the shots I thought I might need to express a scene I could do by just staying on his face. There's always guideposts. Right now I'm in the edit room on All My Life and I find myself saying to the editor, what would Billy Wilder do here? You know, like how would we, how would we, you know, cut through the scene in a really swift way to keep it going? And um, so the, I'm, I'm always just sniffing around any and all filmmakers as as um, inspiration, um, and and almost looking for permission sometimes to just sort of um, do something that I know is um, possible, and not that I need another filmmaker to show me the way, but it's just like yeah, yeah. There's a there's you always can learn from all the movies, and I remember once I, don't know, I, just, I went and saw some panel at Lincoln Center. Um, and Spielberg was speaking. I, think, I guess he was about to have, um, what was that movie, Leonardo DiCaprio? What was it called when he's the con artist um, on the run? Catch, Catch me, me if, if you, you can. can. Yeah. And he, uh, he, uh, he was uh, saying how, you know, he doesn't do it anymore. He doesn't need to do, but it's wonderful to just turn the volume off on a movie and just watch it without the dialogue. You know, just like how do you, wa how do you just watch a movie 
completely silent just to watch the pictures and you can almost figure out the entire movie the same way. Mm-hmm. Which then goes back to something that's fundamental to me, having started in ad writing, which is don't say what you see. So and and that and and you can't just have the dialogue say exactly what you're seeing at the same time, or it's just kind of like too on the nose. Which then links to like working with Tom Noonan, who was very much inspired by the playwright Harold Pinter when he was teaching me. Which is like how do you how do you cultivate what's implicit in the scene so that you give the actor room to to act because what's been established as the conflict between actors in a scene is um, um, doesn't necessarily need to be said. They could be arguing um, about something um, other than what they're about to go do, but you know where they're headed is something that's completely already defined in the conflict of the movie and it gives the actors room to sort of talk about anything, talk about, you know, I, I don't know, the example that comes to mind now is just in Tarantino's movie Pulp Fiction, just how they're talking about, they're about to go harass some people and uh, talking about Royale with cheese and Big Mac and uh, Burger King, but they're not talking about while we go over there, we're gonna go rough up these guys. You know, there's a way to keep the conflict implicit so that the dialogue can sit above that. And the roots of that, I think, are in work like, plays by Harold Pinter where so it's all I'm I, you know I'm reaching all over the place for in, influences but it just is you know finding permission to just be as creative as possible um and uh and not be obvious right yeah and for you jumping out of like when you made harvest or your or even going back to when you did something as bare bones as as approaching union square you're working with a very small independent footprint, and then all of a sudden you now burst into uh, anything that you want. You need a crane, you get a crane. You need uh, you need a helicopter, they give you a helicopter. What what What's this transition been like? Because it's been pretty sudden, hasn't it? It's been great. I mean, I, I look at every movie as being like, oh, each one there's a little bit step further into more resources and more time, more confidence. Um, I feel like with the first movie or two, you're just like, how do I go make a movie? And then at a certain point around how I fell in love, it was like, oh, these are my tools. How do I express myself? I'm expressing myself. And, um, and then with each one, there's just a, a few more resources, like a camera operator who's also a steady cam. So you're actually finding a way to make the, the camera work more fluid on my friend Dahmer. And by the time I just did how he fell, I mean, uh, all my life, um, yeah, you have the support of a studio and a budget and and amount of shooting days that allow you to, if you can think up an interesting way to express yourself with the camera to maximize what's possible with the scene, that there are the resources there to provide for it rather than sometimes with an indie, unfortunately, you have to go, well, what's the proxy reduced version of that idea that I can pull off in in not enough time? And uh, so that's been a wonderful new experience to have as a filmmaker that if, oh, we, we need some more scope. Well, man, we'll bring in the helicopter and film this car going over a bridge and turn that into a, a beautiful moment of cinematography um, or, you know, a crane shot to sort of, you know, start high and, and lower into a scene. scene. Yeah. yeah. And just... Each one has been a baby step forward in, in more in more resources and, and and thank God for that. 
And you work with you're you're literally doing uh, constructing the whole process with with composers and and uh, collaborators. Talk a little bit about working with music and who you do and who you've worked with. Uh, I rarely talk with anyone about that, and I think that would be interesting to hear what you've done with that and how you've done that. Yeah. And how you and how you work out? Well, actually, I'm, you had an example recently that I you did. just told me about uh, working was with with Tariq, wasn't it? Tariq Anwar, yeah. Yeah, and there was an issue with music, right? And you and 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 you had to find a way to well, to get around that, and and you well, and I'll you start with the positive. Out, you stri- no, but you stripped out the music in order to get back to it, right? right you had to right. talk about that. Well, with him, you know, Tariq Anwar is a renowned editor that came in to cut human capital um he likes thomas newman and the score of thomas newman so he cuts with thomas newman's score and sort of sees a movie and footage through that lens and that tone but there was a certain moment where i was like that's not what the score is and we need to completely pull all that score out and see the movie for what it's worth without it and and work from there but I will just say that I am I can't keep a beat. I've probably the worst voice in America. Music is something that I am a fan of but can't do myself. And so when it comes to something like that, you know, it's not my skill. I I um I really have a expanding interest in all kinds of music from rap rock alternative world music and so but, I'm just but I'm freeze on that around. freeze on that moment you're shooting a scene you're yeah. shooting a sequence right yeah yeah uh do you sometimes think about about the music that goes with the scene when you're imagining the scene depends or on the does film the music away at the end depends on the film so like how he fell in love uh i looked at late august or september by Olivia Sayas, and he used this uh, Ali Farkatore, this West African musician, and I just love the way that 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 music played underneath a, at the time a contemporary Parisian story, and I just was going to do something similar on this like small little New York indie that I did with Matt McGorry and Amy Hargraves. So I knew I was going to go into edit with the inspiration of Ali Farkatore and 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 found a composer that could cultivate some New York musicians that worked with those instruments from West Africa. And I felt like that was something I knew in advance. Um, my friend Domery, we were, we were going to go find the deep cuts of punk rock from the 1970s coming out of the Cleveland era. And I met a lot of those Cleveland, um, you know, hardcore punk musicians yeah. and, and the music that the author had listened to and used that as a jumping off point and try to found the, um, the uh, the playlists that were on buzzard radio coming out of Cleveland in the 1970s and sort of did our best within our budget to find as much of that music. And so we saved some of the most important part of the music budget to make sure that the prom scene had real prom songs. And so the other songs were, you know, cheaper 70s songs so that we could really make the prom hit with music that you totally remember and rec- um you know, r- relate to um, every movie. I, I mean, with Harvest, we collaborated with uh, Duncan Sheik and David Poe, and we kind of pointed to Simon and Garfunkel as kind of a model for how to use score and song as coming from one person 
um, or a duo like the two of them to create an EP at the same time as create a, um, a score for with songs um, by Duncan Sheik and David Poe for that movie because somehow we felt that um, there was an acoustic guitar kind of vibe that felt right for that film. Each one kind of kind of leads you down a different different, different road. Path, yeah. yeah, with all my life right now, it's it's about what are what are what are going to be the songs, hopefully, of 2020, 2021, and that and 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 other musical influences because the resources on music there are obviously larger than indie. Right. You yeah. Can, you have more to pull from. More yeah. to pull from. Yeah. Yeah. So and also like other departments working with the production designers and with everybody. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, because you have to. Hopefully, it's this building blocks. Yeah, it's building blocks. I mean, hopefully, this doesn't help pretentious. But yeah. I look at um, being a director a little bit like I get on a raft and go down the river, like Huck Finn or something. And you you know you start with your like village of development and you work your script out, but then you go down the river and you stop over and you make a movie with this like village of circus um, community to shoot a movie and then you take the movie and you go down the river and you sit with an editor and you collaborate there and then he gets on the raft with you and you go down and bring the composer on and, and the sound designers and, and, and then you journey and at the end of the river you just sort of let the movie go into the ocean and hopefully go into you know the awareness and the minds of people you don't know. So it's just sort of this like Huck Finn journey of um, traveling and collaborating with various people along the way. So I feel that's the one thing I really like about being a director is the is the the constant collaboration with different people that are all experts, um, very focused in their own different crafts along the way. And I get to be, you know, a partner to hopefully get the best work out of all of them. Yeah, yeah. I'm you know starting with the actors. That's that they they're incredible human beings, and for me that's one of the most thrilling parts of the process is to collaborate with them. Actors, especially now in the theater at Cherry Lane and Ensemble, when you were working there going back in time, where you you were writing right. plays, yeah. but you were also directing. I don't know much I, about that period of time. No, it's just How writing. Did that, you were writing. Yeah. Okay. I didn't I don't know. I never took to directing theater. Yeah. Just didn't I just um I might have tried it on a one act or two, but I don't know. I like I like the collision of a camera, the science of it, and actors, and sort of meaning to get something that pops on camera, and more so than trying to block something for stage. It's just somehow I'm happy for somebody else to sort of take it from there if it was a play. But also the thing with the thing with theater for me is that you know you you care about something and you put it up. Not only are you not making any money, or or just enough to regenerate the play to keep it going, um, but unless you're successful enough to have like a Broadway or off Broadway play, which wasn't really the case for me, but then it goes away, and then people are like, "Oh, sorry, I missed it." <laughs> sorry, I missed it. So then it I was like, "You know, hang. yeah." And so you know, a short film. It's like at least if I met somebody six months later, I was like, "Can I show you this thing I worked on?" Um, I could give them a DVD of it. Right. And, and and that sort of, that and just sort of focusing what I cared about towards movies was, I haven't really written a play in a while, but I think that doing all that work at the Ensemble Studio Theater um, and with Tom Noonan was like going to, going to the gym every week. It's a I, discipline. 
yeah, every week I'd be working on trying to write something new or further something I was working on that was larger and, you know, once or twice a week bringing it and putting it in the, in the hands of some actors and just sort of putting it on stage. And, and it was also something that you had to do where you were doing something fueled from passion but not getting paid to do it while you're doing it. You're, you're doing that parallel it's your it's your other life with anything else that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which is incredible discipline to be able to continue to do that. Discipline and desperation. <laughs> and desperation. You know, Go and ahead. yeah, just no, uh, you yeah. just had yeah, just had to. You know, if you're constantly unsatisfied with what it is, you keep plugging away at it to try to get it better or try to reach for a, like a larger opportunity or a larger palette. So, but you know, just to try to better my craft as a writer and understand the dynamics of of drama to sort of figure out how do I keep you know five minutes interesting on stage then can I do 10 can I do 15 can I do half hour and at a certain point after I had a bunch of one acts that were you know performed at various theaters I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Milan Stitt where I would once this is going back but I like every weekend or every other weekend I'd go to his apartment in Chelsea and there was a small group of like adult playwrights, me being the youngest at the time, and we'd gather and he was, you know, a distinguished mentor, teacher and playwright himself who would gather with these adult playwrights and kind of help them, you know, improve their craft. And so like Tom Noonan, he was a coach for you, a mentor, yeah. an important mentor. And the yeah. fundamentals that I picked up from them really still hold true in the way that, you know, currently in the edit room on something that I still look at the scene through those that same lens of of breaking down, you know, how do you, how do you set up the conflict and the dynamic at the top of every scene so the audience is clear about what's happening that allows for the actors to have and the dialogue to have the room to, you know, act and um, and keep it as implicit as possible so that we're in you know engaged in the power struggle, the en energy exchange between actors in a room um or in a in a scene and and how that how that develops if it's two people, it's like, you know, one fundamental thing that still holds true that I got from Tom Newman, Newman, Tom Noonan, Noonan, rather. Yeah. It, it's just, you know, two characters, A and B in a room. A says something that B makes B want to leave the room. And then as B starts to leave the room, A says something to keep B in the room. And then B says something to make A want to leave the room. And then A says something that makes B want to leave. But then B comes back in the room and make A want to leave. It's just that simple. It's like playing scales. And so then as I look at a scene, it's like, how do I develop that sort of tennis match of energy between two, two actors in a scene that may or may not have enough conflict on the page? So I need to sort of find a way to block that kind of dynamic and add that to the scene to kind of give it more action, more blocking. And then if a third character, a character C enters the scene, that changes the energy in the room too, you know? And, 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 that, and those fundamentals just still hold true when I'm rehearsing before we shoot a scene. And also in the way that you try to reconstruct a scene in the edit room, it's just like breaking it down that way. And how do you hold on to, uh, cause you've been a writer, but you've also had to work with the scripts of others now. Yeah, which and I like a lot. Which you like a lot. How do you, how do you, what's your disposition during your process of, of allowing the actors to deviate from the script and are there moments where it's necessary? It's moments necessary. I think because I'm looking at it dramatically, 
there's a difference between spontaneity and improv. Improv sort of generally falls flat. Spontaneity can, can, can contribute to the scene. Um, there's, but sometimes you can use a little bit of improv to have the actor sort of find their way to something that's going to contribute to the scene. So sometimes you use that in the rehearsal to sort of stretch the muscles of the scene and sort of figure out what m may be possible. But, um, you know, I, there's always, there should be a dramatic through line and, and every scene and, and every sequence in a movie has to have a purpose. It has to have a reason that it exists that's singular and be, the, from the beginning to the end of that stretch, the characters should be different or there's no change. If there's no change, then why are we sharing the scene? So you're trying to find a way to push, push characters th through that, um, that transformation, either very small or obviously on the larger palette of a whole story or a whole act the same thing and so I'm always sketching that out sort of understanding um their their journeys and so spontaneity I think is more and, and keeping an actor relaxed and loose and having fun is more important than going hey look if you improv maybe we'll stumble on something interesting that's that's not my that's not your game that's not my game right yeah so when actors say oh Mark gave me a lot of space it's like I didn't really give you space to make stuff up. I gave you the space to feel comfortable as the character so that you, you continue to find where the scene is supposed to go. And right. it's, it's almost like a director sometimes is like a goalie and you just like kind of knock away the bad ideas. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. You've got to keep the, keep the course. Right. And then the last part of that is when you're in the mix and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 get that out of the mix. That's, that's not working. That's, that's extraneous, you know. You're always kind of like just. You're eliminating things that are extraneous. That are bumping you. Yeah. Right yeah. up to the end. Right up to the end. And then, and then you're like, all right, time and money is done. And hopefully I get to go top of the river and get on another raft and go down again. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about going way back now, but this is before you're in 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 college studying to this to, is like this is your life for somebody no, no you've never heard of <laughs> that's right we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're exploring mike mark myers man yeah yeah i mean you know you you jumped into this and 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 did it from the standpoint of your journey and an exploration to get to the point where you could start to direct but if you go back in reverse what was it like at home with your family, was there any seed that, with your mom, with your dad growing up, that would have led you to even imagine that you'd be getting into this madness? I mean, I was always, I had done a lot of school plays and stuff like that as a kid. Yeah, um, acted. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then finding permission to write is a, like something you have to emotionally grant yourself to, you know, for me, like, oh, am I going to put out into the world in college an editorial column every other week? other than just hand t my teacher a you know a term paper and uh, and that was maybe the biggest transition from writing diaries or things for myself to going I'm going to write a column I had this column in college called uh, um fried green education where I had guaranteed that I would smoke a joint and then write an, a a column so it was just like oh they got to read like 
what you would what you would write when you were high. Yeah, here's right. just a random idea while I was stoned in college, and you get to read it in the college newspaper every two weeks. And and, and I was like, oh, that'd be fun. And then I'd walk through campus and be like, people were like, dude, I like column of things. And and I had a radio show, so I enjoyed every Monday morning turning on the radio station and having like a two hour radio show where I got to play some of my favorite music and I would interview um, random characters from the college community like the bar owner down the street and things like that. And I just started to explore putting myself out there outside of school. Right. Right. I went to an acting camp when I was in, in, as in, I was in high school and I was always acting as a kid. My dad's a tax attorney. So I don't think he could even write a paragraph to express himself. He, that's not, but my mom is the complete opposite. And, um, you know, I had a lot of support of doing kid plays when I was in middle school and things like that. High school. Were you an athlete as well or? Yeah. Or yeah. You were, you were able to mix all that together. Yeah. I might've been one of the fastest Jews in Westchester at one point. No, I was on the track team in high oh. school, and we, or my soccer team. We went to the state semifinals. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, played soccer One of my the whole life. Fastest Jews in Westchester. Yeah. I'm going to remember that. But <laughs> I write that quote just down. for a small stretch. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, we went to the Penn Relays. I was on a four by four relay team, and I was the captain track team. And I was in a in high school. I was. Um, an amazing set of athletes were a year older than me. And so when I was a junior and they were seniors and we had been playing soccer for a very long time, there were a lot of great athletes a year older than me. And so that they, they kind of carried our team to the state semifinals where I then saw an opportunity in a game against Hewlett Long Island where I, there was an offsides trap and everyone was going to get caught in it. And I ran through it and the ball landed on my foot and I had an open goal and I missed the open goal and we lost to Hewlett Long Island 1-0 in the state semifinals. And uh, the only thing come out of that ex beyond complete humiliation and what my dad called was the shot heard around the county <laughs> um, was that it turned into my college essay. Just how my life would have been different if I had made that goal. <laughs> I love that. And um, yeah, I still it still haunts me. I was like, I can't believe I missed that goal. Little moments. Yeah, little moments. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've always been playing sports. That's good. Yeah. So in terms of uh, in terms of your 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 next steps as a filmmaker, um, are you always with a pile of list a list a, a huge pile of scripts and mm -hmm. ideas that you have that you mm -hmm. want to explore? Yeah. Tell me about some of the stuff that. Uh, well, you can't really talk about yeah. what you want to make in the future. That's can't. the problem. Yeah. You, no, you can't. But I I will say that you know there are I ideas that were bigger than me. So I'm trying to get to them through the steps of other movies. So hopefully there's some ideas that I written a while ago and you know hopefully the they're larger films. The larger mean. films that are larger in scope and ambition but I couldn't be someone who had made how he fell in love and, and said that. oh that oh this next thing you should do is this or even right. my friend Dahmer it's like one by one hopefully I can progress towards those or like stories of adventure and, and size and scope. And, and then also I, I, you know, someone asked me, what are you looking for? And my answer is really just a great, excuse me, a great story. If it comes from me or it comes from somebody else, you know, 
um, and and wherever that story may take me. Hopefully, that's right. Now, now in the case of when we think about the launching point for you with my friend Dahmer, that was a, a genre that's extremely popular, which sort of is fits into the. I guess a bit of the true crime world. It, yeah, there's yeah. a way a, a tap into a loyal audience there. And, right. Talk about talk about audience and that audience. Well, the and, big what, thing, and what and what it is about that on because you're making you're ma each one of these stories is is for an audience, a specific audience. That's the talk first time I, that. That's the first time I ever had a movie that was part of any kind of genre community, and for me that was hilarious and fun and and invigorating to sort of have something that brought me into this really passionate, supportive uh, genre community with sort of a character-driven thing that they could think is part of the genre film. Um, that kind of, does that sort of, I don't yeah. know if that answers your no. question. But, no, no, it does. You know, you know. It does. No, I mean, you're, That's because, because it, it, when you think about what that world represents, I mean... I don't know, Discovery ID, right, is like a, a channel dedicated running around the clock with just true crime stories. Right, right. So, so like genre, true crime. For this. Yeah, they're, yeah. Part, they're passionate. They keep wanting to find more to fulfill that, you know, true crime fascination. And so Jeffrey Dahmer is just one of those characters that keeps on giving, I suppose. Mm -hmm. People want to well, learn yeah, and more many, about and this. Many of these stories, yeah. Summer of Sam, all of these stories, right, right are all about... But that, yeah. yeah, that plays into the fact that I think we're all fascinated by the dark underbelly of our psyche. And here is someone where he's 100% become that dark side of humanity. Um, and it's safe for us as hopefully, you know, responsible citizens to sort of look into the lens of the that dark part of our, our humanity through a character like Dahmer. Or, or somebody else. Or somebody right? else, right. yeah. And so that... And and also that's really fun to direct an actor that's going through that process because I I look back at some of the things I whispered into Ross Lynch's ear between scenes and it's just messed up, you know, just like to help him stay in that mindset of trying to be a kid in high school who in his head is has a desire for things that are far beyond what are normal, but he's still just sitting in the class. Um, fitting in, trying to fit in, trying to relate to his friends. Yeah. And it, it was a wonderful set of um, qualities as a director and an actor to play around with that helped then inspire some wonderful cinematography with a point of view and, um, and, um, and to then go into the edit room and, you know, find a way to assemble that film that sort of expresses his, his, devolution as from a teenager to monster um and 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 you know and what that did i mean i mean it's just the, the dark dark characters are fun to explore but then i'm right now in the edit room on a love story the opposite it's right but there are some devices that still you know I, there are lessons i learned in that edit room with my friend Dama that i you know just by the more that you you're in the edit room, the more times you can pull from previous experiences on ways to look at a scene and break it down or just, you know, it's a tragic love story. So there is a downfall in that relationship that uh, how do you how do you express that in the edit room? Uh, that sort of like 
sliding from hope to hopefulness, hopelessness, and 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 how does that inform the pacing of of the movie in the second half? Things like that. Tell me about human capital. I know very little about it. Right. Yeah. Tell well, me about the story and, well, and how it came about. Because I, I mean, I you know, it looks like it's gonna it's. Is it about to come out, right? It's about to come out. Okay, so yeah. that's exciting. Onto onto its own. Onto so, its own. And yeah, so let's we'll have let's, its little theatrical moment. Oh, tell me about that too. Is it is this I don't know anything about the the campaign for the film and where it's going to end up. Does it have a theatrical window first? It it's a day and date situation. Day and date, okay. Right. So after TIFF it got picked up by Vertical Entertainment and Okay. Um, um and DirecTV, so DirecTV has its own like prior exclusive window, and then so it, it'll go out day and date theatrical and, on March twentieth, yeah, on March twentieth, and streaming or cable or whatever. All the things all, to follow, all, 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 all things to yeah. follow, yeah. And then it'll be in Europe and elsewhere through other distribution channels, and right? Stuff like that, right? It's got full full distribution. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the movie. I don't know anything about it. Well, it's, you know, um, it's the first time in a while I've been. Spoke about it, but it's based on an award-winning book called Human Capital. It's about a decade old. It became an Italian film when a, when an Italian director wanted to adapt it and apply it to his own culture in Italy. So this is sort of the return of taking that the same ideas of that story and returning to the American landscape with which the the story is you know originally set in the book. The screenplays by Oren Moverman, who's just an uh, an inc- incredible person and also an extraordinary uh, screenwriter. And I remember calling him at the end of every day and be like, your dialogue is just so delicious. Just so much fun for these actors to play around with. But it's fun. What I really fell in love with the story um, when when Jody received the script and and um, from Hardy Justice over at Maven Pictures is it's about, it's, it's, it's messing around with time too. And it's a, a movie that's about class and the loss of community and um, it dissects a bunch of people that are all at the same banquet table. Um, Liev Schreiber, Marissa Tomei, and Maya Hawke. And they're, st- they're separate stories that intersect before and after this banquet and how they are loosely connected to a hit and run and how they all um, react differently to preserve themselves um, in relationship to this this sudden accident, this hit and run of this uh, waiter from the banquet who's been run over by a car, and 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 how do the people at the the table connect to the the hit and run moment? So Liev Schreiber's character is a real estate broker, like a local real estate broker, who's trying to invest in Peter Sarsgaard's hedge fund. He's married to Marissa Tomei, um, Marissa Tomei's son, who's at also at the banquet table, is believed. And it looks like, and is probably the guy behind the wheel because it's his car that hit, um, hit the the waiter who happened to be waiting on them coincidentally at this banquet. And so it starts before the banquet, brings you to the banquet through Liev's character, and then how Liev. So the kid who was hit was one of the waiters at the banquet that was hit by the kid of one of the guests. Right. Okay. So they're all loosely connected. Exactly. And so what crazy. You, but yeah, it's great. It. And what's wonderful about it, and in working with Tark in the edit room too, is like what I loved always about the script is the non-chronological order with which this story unfolds that and it and it, on that level it's also about empathy it's also about uh in Liev's story Marissa Tomei is kind of a supporting character in Marissa Tomei's story Liev is kind of a supporting character and so it's how they view each the other person through their 
their own experiences and how you don't really understand what they're going through because you only see them, other people in passing. And that's how I think we all in our own lives are. We have these assumptions about what are the trials and tribulations of another person's life experience. But if you, if you were in their journey, you might better understand where they're coming from. And so th that is sort of expressed through this uh, film that is in non-chronological order. And so that, that that dynamic of of the that also the sort of um, the form of the film was also part of the meaning of the story. I really fell in love with that idea too. Yeah. And so that's how it unravels. It unravels uh, a, a scenes in advance, the banquet. Yeah, it'll be and, a story through yeah. the Ev's journey, and right. then a certain point um, upon the arrival of the detectives at his doorstep. It then goes back to the beginning again, and it goes through Marissa Tomei's journey up to a similar um, benchmark moment in her experience before and after the same banquet. Wow. And then again, it, it, it explores that same timeline through Maya Hawke's character. Um, and at that point, sort of all three stories converge in this film's like sort of denouement. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. And, and, I've I've not seen uh, how he fell in love. What join the club? <laughs> no, I mean I mean he's out there in iTunes. It was on Showtime yeah. or something. But well, yeah, I mean, yeah these but things happen. These they, they happen. Yeah, they I happen. You know, it, tell 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 me about the tell me about this film and uh, and what you put into it, and then I'll go home tonight and watch it. Of course, yeah. And no, we'll it's talk a, about it again. Well, we Jody and I were. Um, trying to get that made after harvest for a, a while. And then when we were pregnant with our, you know, our, our daughter, we realized let's not play around anymore with trying to make it bigger. Let's just make sure we make it before the baby's born. So during the second trimester, we- um, So it was a race to get it- It was a race it to get it made. <laughs> that was a deadline. We got to make this movie before the baby comes. Fantastic. So then in the, um, we were filming, um, uh, over a March or April of whatever year that was, 2013 or something. And uh, no, 2014. I should know that because my daughter was born. But <laughs> um, listen, it's hard to keep right. track of these it's dates. Hard. Right, but it's yeah. it, it it is a it is a film about an extramarital marital affair. So it's about a young man who meets a married woman at a wedding that he connects with. They're both there um, on their own. And she's there on behalf of her and her husband, and they hit it off. And then he finds her again in the city, and they start to just immediately connect and um, start to squirrel away in hotel rooms together and sort of connect outside of their own separate lives. And so it's how this extramarital affair um, really brings them to separate places. So there's they find true love with each other, but it's not one that they can really explore in the real world. Uh, you know, it was a way of... Um, exploring love through like a different lens uh, uh, and, and, and make something with a little bit more. Well, the um, challenge of monogamy, right? The challenge of monogamy, but also just the, the, the challenges of falling in love with someone you can't be with, but maybe that relationship doesn't destroy you, but might in the end make you even better. And that's kind of what we were playing around with in that film. Make you better... As, as, a, a, as, as a, a partner, as a person, as an individual, yeah, as an as an individual. That they mm. they they are 
in the end, you know, I look at these two characters and they're, they're stronger and they're better people at the end of the film than they were at the beginning because of the time that they spent together. And and you were you were joking before about how this is available. It's available if I want to see yeah, it on like, iTunes. It's on iTunes and all those other digital channels and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, that premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival, and then it. Um, I have. I don't remember which network it picked it up after. Oh, all. it did after that. Yeah. So it was playing on cable. At, um, it might have been Showtime. I think. I think it was Showtime. Um, my friend Dahmer was on HBO after its theatrical release, but they're all like on iTunes and Amazon. But did so. my friend Dahmer had a, a window? Yeah, that had a it had a theatrical window. Yeah, that had a nice indie theatrical run for um, I think it was like November to January or something like that, and it just nice. stuck stuck around. Yeah, and yeah. it's still what's in, what's thrilling to us is that it's still on the iTunes charts in the horror and independent film charts like it's still it continues to sell it just continues to there's always going to be an appetite for a story about a serial killer <laughs> people dig it people dig it yeah 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 and for you you know it's funny i mean you know you talk to veteran filmmakers who've lived through the the theatrical era and the streaming era and you know i mean they, everyone's adapted and it's not really that big a deal everyone sort of tries to 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 look at uh, uh, everything as as part of uh, the changes in our in our environment, but uh, but for you, when you're making a, a film, any of these films, are are you are you always considering the idea that what you're going to be playing is not necessarily going to be a large screen uh, 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 experience, or are you always uh, making well, in the case of, of course, uh, uh, your current project, it's theatrical. That's obvious. It's all being of them. made by a studio, but all of them, all of them, all of them, you 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 came out of the box with that idea. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, it's. I'm looking at everything with the idea of um, what would it look like on a big screen, which I mean, in the most fundamental way, is like what is a, what is a close up, if that head is, you know, twenty feet tall. Um, you don't have to be as close in a close up as if it was on a television. I'm making, I'm always thinking I'm making a movie that's for a movie screen. And hopefully, and they all have found a way to. Not, they're all going to have festival showings. But they're all going to have a festival showing, and all of them, fortunately, have had their own theatrical experience right afterwards. Um, Harvest was thrilling for us because that was my first, you know. Um, film after approaching the square that was chronological it was with Robert Loggia, Barbara Berry, Jack Carpenter, Peter um, Peter Friedman, Ari Gross, and it played film festivals for about a year and um, was theatrically distributed and and had a New York Times critics pick review that really just to me showed the power of the New York Times. What was the budget on Harvest? Well, Do you remember? Yeah, it was like 400k something like that fantastic yeah so from 400k <laughs> we get to let's see all my life and now all of a sudden it's 30 million a, le a little less than that but it's also you know it's a studio's small movie but it's for me movie. it's a little movie for a studio but for me it's a wonderful wonderful window into what's possible yeah and you were able to shoot the current project in 
50 days, 40 days, 30 days. What do we yeah, have? Probably, um, yeah, probably probably, 10 weeks or seven uh, weeks, six um, weeks. Yeah, I mean, I finished right before Christmas. We started on Halloween. It was like, I think it was like 35 days. And nice. It was nice. You yeah, know, when you, you the get time. a- Yeah, when you have a call sheet and you're shooting two pages that day is much different than an indie where it's like, you have to shoot six pages a day and 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 be wound up the whole day trying to just- To get it done every day. day. And, you, and you're sometimes not getting every scene. But then even you get in the editing room on anything where you didn't make your days, but you still have more than you need uh, to tell your story. Um, you pack more in the bag than you need for the trip. Yeah, but it's crazy is that we summon the darkness, which Lionsgate and uh, Saban are putting out, and that comes out in April. That so that's coming out this April. That's coming in April, right? Tell me about we summon the darkness. That I was shot sixteen days, and that had pyrotechnic. Sixteen days. It was in. It was the craziest sixteen days of my life. Wait, is that, how, 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 how does that? How is that done? Did I don't, you shoot in one location? Well, yeah, you shoot. We shot about one. The two two thirds of it are around a house, like a hero house, and uh, where you know all of these characters gather. Um, one, over a course of one night. So there's no real costume changes going on because it's all over the course of one day and into the following morning. And it's just uh, 90 minutes of chaos. <laughs> and uh, it's my first experience with pyrotechnic stunts. Um, Tell me about that. It was awesome. Tell me about the pyrotechnic stunts. Well, there are these two characters out of Montreal that came because we had to shoot in Winnipeg, you know, because of the tax credit financing, the benefits uh, of bringing to the Western Canada. Yeah, uh, yeah, the Canadian Prairie. In, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've, I've I've heard little bits and pieces about how that works. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, you have to use local crew, right? Local crew. Right. Um, I had a wonderful cinematographer, uh, Taryn Anderson, out of Los Angeles that I had met. She came in with her camera operator, who's a steady cam guy as well. But besides that, everyone else was outside of the producers that were, you know, like J Jody as a producer with um, on the film with a bunch of uh, uh, guys out of either London or Los Angeles. But everyone else on the set was uh, a Canadian crew. Um, and they were... They were thrilled to be not making a Hallmark movie, I'll tell you that, you know. I can imagine. <laughs> and, but there are these two characters called the Blood Brothers out of Montreal that were the special effects, practical special effects guys. And they were they're like... called the Blood Brothers? They're called the Blood Brothers. And All right, and it is stop right there. And they're like magicians. Tell me about the Blood Brothers. What the... What? Well, if what you, is the Blood Brothers? If you drink whiskey for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, your voice is going to be really raspy like the blood brothers those guys were total characters i love them they're they're they were fantastic and, and they any, love being in western canada where they could do that all day no, yeah i think kidding. they're doing a lot of work across canada and yeah. elsewhere but these guys whatever they were doing on my film was nothing compared to what they are capable of but in this story they you know we had stabbings and blood coming out of necks and and out of stomachs and fire and um, jumping girls jumping through candy glass from the second floor of a house landing in a big you know that's more of a stunt stunt coordinator's job but you know in the big you know mattresses and stuff like so that. so they do blood blood fire blood fire disaster pirate. yeah glass breaking uh, um, explosions whatever. explosions and and also um you know the basic atmosphere stuff but they were just so fast and just always there with whatever the request may be because sometimes the re you're planned for it but other times you're like you know what would really be great and they're like 
we'll be right back. And they, they'd come in and they would pull off some little special magic trick to make, you know, the scene that much more, you know, colorful. Fantastic. Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was a great wild ride with Daddario, Knoxville, Maddie Hassan, Amy Forsyth, Logan Miller, Austin Swift, and Kean Johnson. Yeah, that's a heavy metal flick. Heavy metal. Yeah. And 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 these guys get to use their skill uh, uh, for stabbing blood, glass, yeah, fire. When I read that script, it was after my friend Dahmer, and fortunately they. Th- thought of me and I read it and I was like, oh, this is from a filmmaking point of view, a continuation into the genre form in a way that I've never done before, but it's almost where Dahmer leaves off. Like Dom, the Dahmer film leads up to his first murder. And then this one is just full of- Just nonstop murder? Well, just a lot of it. A lot of murder. It's three girls. There's this, there's this cult documentary called Heavy Metal Parking Lot that's on YouTube. And it's this guy that in the 80s had done a documentary, interviewed um, people in the parking lot of like a Judas Priest concert. And so it's a wonderful inspiration for this very smart script by the screenwriter Alan Trezza. And it's uh, three girls are during the satanic panic of the late 80s, go to a heavy metal concert and in the heavy metal parking lot they meet three guys and they go to the concert with them and then afterwards they invite the three guys back to the back to her uh alexandra daddario's house and you think that the boys are bad and um and then it just gets you know and then it and and it has wonderful twists in it that just carry you through and lots of props that were hard to keep track of when i was filming you know like who's got that knife you know, just like who you got <laughs> you got to leave that knife there because the other scene, this other character's got to pick it up later, and it was just wild and bloody and fun and spontaneous and um um and f- and, and 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 how do you get in the mindset for that? I mean, <laughs> right? Because this is a script that you were given, right? You didn't right. write this script, yeah. and but but you dove into this script with with uh, 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 all of the energy needed to be able to pull off the, the chaos of it all and bring order and shape to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just fun. It was just fun. I mean, it was, I read the script, I, um, I gave it to Jody. I was like, what do you think of this? And I just watched her read it and laugh out loud. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. It's funny and it's fun. And so one of the first things I did was sort of take out the sort of self-aware wink wink kind of dialogue that was in the film and kind of keep it in 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 my style of being more authentic to the what would it be like if three girls had this agenda and they were not that good at it and and i don't want to give away too much about the movie but um that that sort of to do a movie that was fun like that was the oh let's make a movie that's just fun that was fun, refreshing. It was fun to do every day. So this comes out in in April. For, April, I think for April ten. April ten. That's and, Good uh, Friday, right? And I guess I don't. Yeah. I don't have my. Uh, I don't have my calendar. Don't on ask the right. Jew in the room. I don't. Yeah, I think no, it's April ten. Yeah, me the same on that one. So that's going to be uh, coming out, and 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 it's going out theatrical and day and date as well. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's so the that's, that's the plan. The, 
and the, uh, uh, and they've the way of the you, world. And they've given you the amount of, of cities that you'll be playing in, you'll be playing in around the country, or do they, do they tell you about all that, or do they just sort of say, this is the general strategy? Well, like, I think one of the fundamental basic rules of day and date is that it has to get premium placement on TVOD, which is transactional video on demand, which is what this will have as well. Which is what is which one God. part of which is one part of what day and date is is the is the ability to buy it wherever you are in the country right. from wherever your living room is. Right? right on. To be able to have premium placement, I think one of the basic rules is it has to be at least in ten cities at the same time. Uh huh. So you're you're sort of starting there. Um, I think that there's a wonderful opportunity for We Summon the Darkness to just hopefully like Dom just stick around in on um, sort of the iTunes charts and stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, With and three beautiful women at the forefront of it too. So. Which is fantastic. Yeah. What cinema and beautiful women are meant to be together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then just loads of blood and stabbing and craziness. Yeah. And some <laughs> funny jokes along the way and Knoxville's just great. Hilarious. Yeah. He's great. Nicest guy. And and will you uh, will you tour with it? How, do they have a budget for that? Will they send you out on the road to to talk about it at all, or to meet the, to, to 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 show up anywhere for it? Or that is well, that not a film where they'll do that? No, they'll do that. I mean, it pl it's playing some film festival this weekend, and then when it comes out in April, I know that I have a. I just got some emails about a bunch of podcasts in the sort of genre community that will be sort of. The screenwriter and, I, screenwriter and I will be on in the lead up to its release, and um, right I'm to start not, to market. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm working all my life right now, so that's my that's your primary. That's my fo that's my that's my hundred percent focus. When does that open? I don't know. You don't know. I right, 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 right. Because that doesn't have a date yet. You're just you're finishing it now for the studio. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. I, I'm just keeping my head down, making making the movie and doing the best I can on it. Yeah. Well, it's fantastic. It's, it's huge. Like, I yeah, I I mean I mean approaching in square, which was based on a play, the first thing Jody and I did together were we'd shot on weekends. It was like eleven different short films. Each weekend it was a different cast. The main character from each of those short films all happened to be on the same New York City bus together. And that was the first film, which was based on a play I wrote. That, we took a Canon XL1 or Canon XL2 camera and some other Pelican cases full of gear and would throw it into a taxi every Saturday morning and go to a different location with a different cast who would meet us there. And we would shoot a, an interior scene with a few characters. And we had 11 different of those short films that then thread together to become Approaching in Square, which... So to, you know, to go, oh, yeah, we, you know, we're just trying to figure out how to make a movie with that, with that and a budget of maybe 10K or something. And so it's nice to have more resources than that and not to just go to set in a taxi cab. Yeah. 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 But, you know, uh, uh, apropos of, of the structure of that, we were we were talking about other examples of that the other day, where uh, like Night on Earth for Jim Jarmusch, The Cab Ride, or the coffee you know, and cigarettes coffee just and come cigarettes, out, right? Right. So these are like also examples that inspire the idea of threading together 
shorts. Right. Or giving you the permission as a filmmaker trying to figure it out going, oh, yeah, you know, it's possible. I may not have at that point or, you know, you know, at, at any point have the the sort of community or the cachet around someone like Jim Jarmusch, whose films I love. So there's something with all of the wonderful celebrity actors that come through on something like Coffee and Cigarettes that brings such excitement to this unique film of his. But when that was available and I saw it, I was like, I was, we were prepping approaching the square and I was like, yeah, it's possible. Let's, you know, we can do one too. That's a, a movie made of vignettes. Um, that aspires to that. That aspires to that. Right. Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen, uh, and I need to see the film harvest that you made. Mm -hmm. Um, the inspiration for making that film was what for you? Um, well, I was... How did it come about? Well, I was... My grand, my own grandfather, you know, one summer, uh, the whole family knew that he was going to pass away. And he was a World War II veteran. And, uh, and at the time, I just would go... I was working at the IFP then, out of college a couple of years. And on weekends, I would go back up to Connecticut where he lived his whole life. And I would be there on the weekends and I would sort of journal my observations about how all the family members were sort of handling his final summer in very different emotional ways. So then when that had passed and I had found myself um, back from that main film and television workshop, one week exercise, I stopped home at his home on the way back to New York and happened to be alone in his bedroom and the hospice nurse had left with my mother and my uncle at the time left the room and I happened to be alone with him and he was holding my hand and he passed away. He looked, he raised his head, he looked me in the eyes, squeezed my hand and died. I was just, you know, rat rattled to the core. And then I just had to go back and be like, I got to try to write a screenplay that kind of goes to that moment. Um, and then, wow. and so, yeah. yeah. And so, then you kind of create as a, a filmmaker one a, a movie that you believe in so much because you personally have to go do it that sometimes you're blinded to does the world want to see this i'm not sure and it's a well-told story but what i learned from making that was you know maybe you have to as an independent film make a movie that's not just well told but provocative at the same time now it it really did play really nicely with let's just say the fly flyover states um but sort of in the tastemaker community i think of the world in which we live in new york and los angeles um it might not have been cool enough of a film but stephen holden and the new york times gave it a a great new york times pick review that really helped give it a nice launch in its theatrical um window after its festival play um and that was a movie just of pure heart and it was one that I, I felt like I, I, I almost felt like I couldn't move on until I had made that movie. And that's the way I look back at it. Like it, I had to go through that one. Cause this is right. This is after you, you, you do your first, which is the union square project. Right. right. And it's like, and you learn from that. And you're like, you know, that's that we learned how to make a movie. We learned, we put ourselves through the, 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 the workflow, the mechanism of, of shooting a movie and going through posts and everything else, putting it out in the festivals, 
uh, having uh, like some international festival experiences with that and, 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 and cultivating, um, I think the Sundance channel bought approaching in square. And so you had from, you know, A to Z experience on, on that movie with a bunch of actors who I had known through sort of the New York theater community. And then from that, it was like, we have to make a movie that's chronological, not just vignette nature. And I, and, and by doing harvest was to do our, almost our first conventional independent film together, Joni and I, and in the, and in the process of doing everything from raising the money, um, finding all the locations. How'd you raise the money for that? Well, it was New York, right? I mean, I mean, Connecticut, right at the moment when they were about to start their Connecticut tax credit program. You shot in Connecticut? We shot in Connecticut, in Madison, Connecticut, okay. where that, um, where my own, f you know, mom's family and my grandfather was from. So I was, when I wrote it, I was writing it with real locations in mind. So in many cases, I shot in, in places I had written for and had to find a main house that was somewhere near and large enough that larger than a family house that I, my family had, like it's just a small modest house, but to find one larger enough for this like larger family story. Um, and the premise there just as a tangent was like, what if my younger brother who was in college had to come home for the summer and thinks he's only visiting but gets stuck there for the summer because the grandfather's passing away. And what is that relationship like for a college kid who's faced with the more the the final summer of his grandfather, witnessing what his mother and two uncles may be going through separately and his grandmother with Alzheimer's? How are they all aware of and handling the loss of this World War II veteran? who's the grandfather, the patriarch of the family. So it was written with these real locations in mind and the Connecticut tax credit was a burgeoning opportunity in Connecticut. And that allowed Jody and I to cultivate relationships in Connecticut through people excited for the idea that independent film might be rising in Connecticut. And through yet again, like other movies to follow, we went and sat down with lots of random characters in Connecticut that were excited by the opportunity of a movie written for a place in their state and we all private equity all private equity learned how to and you were raising it from multiple individuals multiple individuals fantastic um, yeah and yeah it, and I you mean, know you wow. do the, the business plan you know you, you have the advice of your production attorney to set up the investment plan so that they're all class b um investors mean that they have an investment stake in the film but they don't have creative oversight of the movie they're basically entrusting us to make right. the movie and right so they, which is wonderful that was yeah. the ideal relationship with the investor of course not always the case right ideal for them or ideal for us mm -hmm. not ideal for them and the fact that they may not make their money back but you know you had to you know barrel through with the faith that it could and the cast felt wonderful um and i think everyone's proud to have been associated with that movie that we you know, we piece together. Um, then, you know, there's the Connecticut tax credits. So there was a day where I remember Jody had, we had gotten everything organized so that you could, how did this work? You could sell your tax credit in the state. So there was a day where she had gone and we needed that money to continue the budget for post. And right. that was well, the, the plan. Idea, the idea is that, that the, the folks that are able to do that will give you anywhere between 80 plus cents on the dollar exactly as an advance and then 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 they bank it at the end right and so and the make Connecticut their profit the Connecticut tax credit had 
or te- Connecticut uh, Film Commission had uh, approved and given us a certificate for a certain value off our Connecticut, Connecticut expenditures. Right. And she had gone on the train up to Stanford, met a guy on the platform that was part of this company. And he... This, this, is, all, this is accidental or is... No, on purpose. On like purpose, it was a range. Yeah. It was okay. something all part of the plan. And that was the day with which she... Um, handed over the certificate to him in exchange for his purchase of that certificate so that he could bundle that tax credit as part of his financial plan or whatever. Right. And we came and she came back with a large enough check for us to I mean, it was all prearranged and worked course, out yeah. with agreements of course. that we had the money to finish post. So we went into filming with not all the money, but enough to get us in into the first couple of weeks of edit. Yeah. Right. So you didn't have all of the money for the entire offline editorial and the finishing. Exactly. Right. Right. And then you were able to pull that together from this piece or? Exactly. And then finish off the movie. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you actually did. So you did that because sometimes it's, it's done in advance. So you did this after you wrapped. You had to with the Connecticut case, one. Because they had to know what your spend was. The guys that financed right. it. Got no, it. like something like we summon the darkness. Because you sometimes know, you do it up front, right? Yeah, there's pre-sales. Yeah. But that's based on the value of the talent attached. Right. They're like, oh, this is a movie where we'll put this amount, amount of money forward because we like the cast. And then that money is you know, provided as part of the um, what you have for, to shoot the film. Right. That right, becomes production financing. Exactly. Yeah. Or one piece of it. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's interesting to have heard about some of these things when I was younger, and then ultimately go th- through it and 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 see them play out on a project that I'm a part of. And 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 now after all my life, the the hopefully the next project's all studio financed. So that's would be that, more, that, that would it, be the goal. It'd be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. it's if it's a great story that you just you have to live with a story for like two years at some point and you want to be proud of it and have if i didn't write it when you when you write something you find your way in you know there's a couple books that we have and other scripts that i've written where you're emotionally attached to it and you believe in it before you even put your pen to paper but if you get a script you i've come to realize it's a little bit like an actor it's like how does an actor if it's not for a huge paycheck or even if it is for a huge paycheck um you have to engage in a story because you must explore that character or must explore that story. So you, you know, hopefully in the future, I find stories that I must do. Like I just must have that experience. And I learned that from the actors, like how they align themselves with projects. It's like they, they, it's, it's partially just purely an emotional thing that they must go through. And so the same thing happens if I find a story, I'm like, I must explore this. And sewing this all together with you and your partner and wife, Jody. Yeah. And our what, daughter now, too. And your daughter. Who's ridden the Dolly track and been to a bunch of sets and had her name in the special thank yous. We're all very proud of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It's adorable. So you're, 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 you're immersing <laughs> her in your movie business life. Yeah, I'm happy for her to have gotten a window into that. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That's great. But you're so much of this... Uh, uh, anchors with with uh, what I like to call uh, uh, the the convergence of of uh, of art and commerce, right? I mean mm-hmm. that those are the collaborations, right? Mm-hmm. That are that are producer, director, writer, uh, uh, artist collaborations. That is you and 
and Jody. Mm -hmm. But is there or have there grown other players that are involved in this journey with you to make it possible for this producing to happen? There's not a company or is there a company or how is this all? We've always had a You've always had your company. Yes. Right, but not a, but there's not a an engine or a, a another set of producers that follow that no. follow your path. You guys do it yourselves. Yeah, each project which is has an amazing story. It is, you know? I guess. I or, think it is to a great extent. I mean, when you think about the we don't have some I, patron yeah. behind us that's kind of enabling us to have an office somewhere to set up and do our business like each project has yeah. fueled us to kind of make that one happen and then from that you try to cultivate more opportunities yes i mean there are there are arrangements out there where there's people that do have you know a founding patron or or founder of the company that is very wealthy and and provides for that you know those that office and that resource, we don't have that for, for the yeah for the right. lin, the linear path that you yeah. that you have to construct really right right because right. that's the challenge right yeah it is because and now okay like as an example you finish all my life right uh, which will happen not that long from now right how much how many more weeks like another I ten think, weeks eight weeks yeah I think um, you know somewhere at the early summer would probably be the likely. Um, delivery of the film. And you constantly have to be thinking about the next thing while you're doing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's that like for you? Trying not to think about it? How about that? <laughs> Just trying to keep my head down into this one? Do it. I love do, that. Yeah. But I mean, I because I think about that in my, even yeah, in life. my own work life. Yeah. You know, about that next thing and how you how you, you pour your energy into the current thing, which you have to. I'm on a project now that I'm working as a post-supervisor, but but... I'm I'm constantly thinking about what's the next gig, and yeah. uh, have you explored beyond the feature world? Have you explored any television ideas? Are you are you thinking about that? Yeah, we're developing or, a few television ideas. I mean, I feel like everybody's developing television ideas now. You know, it's the it's the gold rush of and the arms race of streaming right now that everyone sees that there's a there might be somewhere out there for someone to make a TV show. So yeah, of course we have a few TV ideas. Um, and I'd love to do some television. I'd love to. Have you been called in to do any directing? No, not for that. Not for individual I, episodes. Well, or, I haven't been even yeah. available to explore it because I've you've just been so busy. I've done three movies back to back to back, and that was after Dahmer. So it's been back times four, back to back. You know, um, um, and I would love to jump on a movie to do this. You know, late summer and and. And in the fall again, um, the challenge with shooting anything in the fall, though, is that it gets dark at four o'clock, and you're just like, "Ugh, I wish I had more daylight." Right, <laughs> that, exactly. I've had exactly. a few of those experiences lately. So, um, but even so, I mean, yeah, television is something I'd explore. I'd love to do a pilot and, or and and or develop a show, or come in and do some episodes of of something um, that pushes me creatively in ways unforeseen unanticipated yeah no no, no, yeah. no absolutely yeah it's quite a process it is i mean because i've seen the uh the work that people put into the the series bible 
And it's become very sophisticated. They make like bound books and I know. Yeah. I've done a bunch of lookbooks for projects that you're interested in. Yeah. 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 You just put on this well, one way to do it. Sales deck. Put on this yeah, it's like a sales deck. You put on the stereo in your my apartment and I surf the internet looking for images that from other movies and other photography out there that may represent what I think best communicates what this movie could be. Sometimes you pull other movies together into some sort of sizzle reel to create a mood reel that suggests what this film or TV show could look and feel like to give others a window into how you envision the final product. And all of it's hypothetical because there's so many challenges that are going to hit you along the way that you've got to just problem solve and see your way through, which all feel like part of the way in which you it contributes to what the your actual end project will become is, you know, the scars and the and the good ideas of the journey of making the actual thing. But it's all hypothetical at the start. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to throw back to one more story that I left out, and it's an important one. Ira Deutschman who yeah. was a guest on one of my podcasts. In yes. fact, he was my first guest that I actually had a sit down with. And you somehow ended up working with him. Uh, uh, or at, working at a, near at him. Near yeah. him? Oh, so yeah. it was not with him. Well, at, no, emerging, with him. Ci- at Emerging Cinema. Tell me about emerging that story. Cinema. Well, so I was, at, I was at Variety and when that regime change switched and I'd spent a little time at Broadcasting Cable, I was like, this is not for me at all. Like the only thing I cared about at Variety was being around the film community um and so when that when that switch happened and i left uh, that office variety i was looking for something else to do in the independent film community while i had the plan to go make approach union square with jody and so during the week i would go over to emerging cinema's offices which were at at the time the duart building at the duart building and would try to help them sell sponsorship to support the independent cinema uh, network of ah, uh, the, uh, the, the program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and cultivate those relationships. Um, and Ira Deutschman's always ahead of the curve in regards to distribution and, and the ways in which movies can reach people. And, and I thought that was an exciting and um, enlightened concept to how do you take over through digital cinema, other venues that are the not that are like museums and other organizations that might have a screen. What, what they refer to as the non-theatrical world. The non-theatrical. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, after I made Harvest, I think that that film in part was brought to some cities through the Emerging Cinemas Network. How interesting. Or might, So you collided back. Collided back. Yeah, or it might have been the Neat. next film. But either way, or both, I don't... It might have been Harvest and How He Fell in Love, but... Um, yeah, so um, I saw him and his two partners and met some friends through that um, office that I'm still friends with that um, were all also in, uh, taken by the ambition of emerging cinemas. And so for... Because uh, it's another revenue stream that's out there that doesn't fit with all of the other aspects of of normal distribution through theaters and through streaming. Right, and how do you bypass the gatekeepers that are theatrical bookers who determine what movies from what distributors reach the cinemas like Landmark, the Lemley, the Angelica Chain, City Cinemas, and right other on. other uh, groups of cinemas that are out there on the country that show independent foreign and art films. 
Um, and then things like if you look at like Alamo or the Nighthawk, they're they're doing a, a mix of like big films like a Star Wars movie mixed with the sort of niche community films, you know, like a Spectrovision film with Nicolas Cage, like Color Out of Mind or Mandy and things like, you know, they're all coming through something like uh, the Alamo. So where do other independent films maybe have a venue to reach its community? And through the, at the time, um, the mailing lists and the community that's built by museums and other non-theatrical yes. venues was a wonderful way for other films to find some audiences. And so, um, I thought and, can, was, and can continue to play right after they're gone. Right. And, or just With, not and run play into for a, the first time as right. well. And not find a theatrical book booker or the strength of, um, competing with larger distributors to, as the only way to then reach people on a movie screen, but to go through something like emerging cinemas opened up an opportunity for a lot of other independent films. And there's, you know, and then I think day and date started to sort of, and the, the, like now in which we sort of can get our movies through digital so quickly that there's, there's other challenges or other resources that allow the movie to find people in any part of the country and beyond. So, but that, there's something about emerging cinemas that I think was, you know, ahead of the curve. Like, how do you, how do you get, how do you, how do you bypass some channels to reach the audience? Exactly. Yeah. It's cool. It was yeah. cool. So I did that as a way to keep me busy during the week while I was once again, planning approaching yeah. square and shooting that on the weekends. Yeah. This has been fabulous. A survivor as you are, <laughs> I, you I, are a survivor. Well, yeah. thank you. That's nice. You, so are you hard. We go back. We've had many a drinks together. <laughs> yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. It was good. Thank Great you hanging so, out. so much. Thank you, Charlie. All right. Bye. All right. Cheers.